Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. How homelessness is a public health crisis. It really impacts their ability to be productive and actually work towards addressing their homelessness and get into a safe place. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The fight over a voucher program to house people with no shelter heats up. So I appreciate the attorney general saying you're not going to violate every state and federal housing law, not here in California. A new report reveals problems with Imperial County's 5150 holds and a new children's book about Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The San Diego Board of Supervisors passed a proposal today that would declare homelessness a public health emergency. While the move won't release additional funds to address homelessness, the declaration will allow the county to focus resources on the numerous health issues plaguing the community. Regional leaders have said that addressing these needs are critical to ultimately breaking the cycle of homelessness. Joining me now with more is Hunan Scrapper, the Regional Director for People Assisting the Homeless or PATH. Hanan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, we hear a lot about how mental health challenges are such a big problem for the unhoused population. Uh, But how do physical health issues also keep people stuck in the cycle of homelessness? Having direct access to adequate health care and having a safe place to sleep, they really go hand in hand. We really need our our clients, individuals, people to really be living in uh, a safe environment in order to access equal health care. And, you know, when we think about each one of us, when we're not feeling well, we want to be able to stay home and sleep, get some rest. And that's just not available to our clients. And we see various health issues through uh, when we do street outreach. Um, we see some issues related to open wounds that really get worse over time and get infected. Cellulitis, you know, chronic health conditions such as heart and liver disease, just various um, health issues that our unhoused individuals are experiencing. And it really impacts their ability to be productive and actually meet their goals in life and being able to actually work towards um, addressing their homelessness and get into a safe place. And homelessness is often framed as a housing crisis. Do you think it's more important to focus on the public health aspect of this issue? 
I think we need to do both. It is a housing crisis. You know, a lack of adequate affordable housing is an issue in addition to healthcare, right? Access to healthcare for our unhoused population is really critical. And when they don't have a safe place to stay, and if you're out on the street, your chronic health condition or even a small wound can get really worse. So healthcare and housing all tie together in order for us to address homelessness in our community. Outreach workers often talk about how members of the homeless community are reluctant to address mental health issues. Is this the case with basic health care needs as well? Yes. And I think in some cases, you know, people may not have had a great experience accessing health care. And similar to when we're not feeling well, we may go to our primary care physician or a doctor and in our unhoused population, they don't have a doctor to go to. They have not established that level of care. And so they may go to the emergency room to get their basic health care needs met. And so we need to change that framework so that people do have access to physicians. People do have access to going into a clinic or a healthcare center to receive those basic medical needs. And by making healthcare accessible, it really helps people improve their health, access to medication, access to wound care, and follow-up services and medication. These are all critical services that are unhoused and actually all humans need. And older people who are homeless are particularly vulnerable to healthcare complications. Why is that? Yeah, so our recent, you know, 2022 point in time data showed that 25% of the unsheltered population is 55 and older. And so as you can imagine, the health conditions that come with being outdoors and some of the health issues that I brought up earlier those tend to get worse over the years as people haven't been able to get their health needs met. And so working closely with, you know, our federally qualified healthcare centers and our health plans closely to really address the population's need will really help the older population access these services and be able to stabilize in a safe and um, healthy environment. How do outreach organizations work to connect the unhoused with their individual healthcare needs? And why is healthcare access such a big problem in the first place? So our population, they may not know healthcare like Medi-Cal is available to them. And so all of our outreach teams are very well versed in knowing how to help someone get their healthcare insurance reinstated or even established to begin with. So what we've seen to be successful is actually accompanying individuals into these federally qualified health centers to establish a primary care physician, to establish regular care and follow-up services. We've seen tremendous success in that and programs such as CalAIM, which is a state-funded program that is funded directly to the healthcare plans, which allows us to provide uh, mental health, substance use treatment, and community supports that's really looking at social determinants of health has really been a huge service in our communities. So making sure individuals know these resources are available to them and ensuring that our, our outreach specialists out on the street are knowledgeable about these healthcare resources. A San Diego's homeless community in recent years has been plagued by a few notable outbreaks of sickness. Can you talk about why these kinds of public health emergencies present a higher risk to the unhoused? I think it's uh, it comes down to like access to basic needs, right? Access to a bathroom where people can use bathroom, shower, and be able to actually meet their activities of daily living is critical. That will allow people to have a place to 
stay clean and healthy, as well as um, having resources in terms of shelter and permanent housing. I think when we have so many folks who are unhoused living on the streets, the streets aren't meant to be homes, aren't meant to keep people and provide a safe space for folks. So when you have a lot of people who are living unhoused on the streets, it really increases those chances of public health risk for everyone. I've been speaking with Hanan Scrapper, the Regional Director of PATH. Hanan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As you just heard, today the San Diego County Board of Supervisors declared homelessness a public health crisis. And against that backdrop, the fight over a San Diego County program that gives motel vouchers to unhoused people seeking shelter in El Cajon is heating up. We've told you that the city of El Cajon is threatening to fine hotels and motels participating in the county's Bridge Motel Voucher Program. Well, on Friday, Attorney General Rob Bonta sent the city a warning that it is violating state and federal housing laws. El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells' response, that assessment is, quote, egregiously false. Joining me now to talk more about this is KPBS reporter Alexander Wynn. Alex, welcome. Oh, thanks, Jade, for having me. Remind us why El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells was threatening to fine hotels and motels that accept county housing vouchers. Well, he claims that the county is dumping unsheltered people in his city. According to him, uh, El Cajon only has around 5% of the county's homeless population, but 45% of the people participating in the voucher program are in the city. So to put things into perspective, there are 18 motels and hotels participating in the voucher program. Eight of them are in El Cajon, and about four are in the city of San Diego, and the rest are scattered throughout the county. And he says that it's not about homelessness, but this is a public safety issue. According to the city, more than 20 people have been arrested at or near participating hotels and motels in the past uh, 10 to 15 days. Uh, In response, the Attorney General, Rob Bonta, sent a letter on Friday to El Cajon saying the city is violating the law. In what ways is the city violating uh, the law with this threat, and what is the Attorney General asking them to do? Well, the Attorney General is asking them to rescind the warnings, refrain from sending similar notices in the future, and publicly declare that the motels and hotels in the program are not subject to punishment from the city and also to direct the police to cease any unlawful harassment of people staying at the hotel. And basically what he's saying is that the city is violating the Fair Employment and Housing Act. And basically people who are using vouchers to pay for the hotel, that is their basis of income. And by discriminating against them, that is discriminating against their employment or their way of paying for the hotels. I mean, so which is true? Does screening participants in the voucher program have anything to do or even violate the Fair Employment and Housing Act? Well, according to the Attorney General, yes, it does, because he says that the legal definition of lawful and verifiable income includes public assistance to pay directly to the housing owner, in this case, the motels and hotels owners. And the voucher program is a San Diego County program. So what has their response been to all of this? So yesterday, Nathan Fletcher said that Bill Wells' assertion is untrue. About 95% of the people who are participating in this program are from the East County and you know the city of El Cajon. So that's why they're staying in 
uh, the East County. So Nathan Fletcher says this is just a publicity stunt from Bill Wells. Also on Friday, the Regional Task Force on Homelessness sent a letter to El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells, co-signed by seven other groups. What did they say? Well, they say this is just harassment of unsheltered individuals, and they point out that in the most recent point-in-time homeless count, homelessness in the city of El Cajon has increased by 69% since uh, 2020, from about 775 people to about 1,300 people. And has the mayor responded publicly to the warning from the attorney general? Yes, he has. Yesterday, he sent out a statement that says that the attorney general's assessment is egregiously false and that is one-sided. But he has also rescinded the warning to hotel owners after what he described was a productive meeting with the city. You know, we haven't talked about the people who receive these vouchers. What do they say about all of this? Well, one person that, you know, we talked to is a diabetic who uses the voucher, and she said it is a lifesaver. She says she has to take insulin, and you have to keep it cold so he, she can't be outside. And we talked to her, um, you know, our colleague Matt Hoffman talked to her uh, during the heat wave uh, that affected the uh, county back like two weeks ago. So she can't be outside where it is hot. She has to keep the insulin cold so she says it's frustrating that the city of El Cajon is doing this, and she's questioned, well, why would you not want hotels to be helping homeless people? And as we deal with another heat wave today, I'm sure the same is true. Uh, so what's next here in all this? Well, the city council is slated to meet at 3 p.m. today to discuss Bonta's letter and also what the city's next steps will be. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Alexander Wen. Alex, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. Local and state lawmakers have been trying to retool the behavioral health system to address long-standing failures in the treatment of people with mental illness. In a crisis, authorities have the ability to hold someone against their will to prevent them from harming themselves or others. But a new investigation from iNewsource found that Imperial County's use of psychiatric holds may be more than just inadequate. In many cases, it may be illegal. I'm joined by Jennifer Bowman, investigative reporter with iNewsource. Jennifer, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you. Good to be back. What is a psychiatric hold or a 5150, as it's often referred to, and what could lead to someone being placed into that hold? Yeah, so a 5150 hold, that, that is kind of what it's commonly known as. That's a, a nod to the section of state statute that actually governs these holds. So in California, if you're suffering a psychiatric crisis and you're found to have been uh, be a harm to yourself or to others or gravely disabled, you can be held at a hospital or a designated health facility against your will for up to 72 hours. Um, this is often kind of the, the most 
the first step someone might experience when it comes to involuntary treatment in California. And experts actually warn that it can be a, a quite traumatic experience um, and one that people may experience on um, multiple times. Your investigation focused on what are called serial or stacked holds. Can you explain what those are and what you found? Yeah, so there, there are different levels to involuntary treatment. It starts with this 5150 hold we're talking about, and it, and it can build up to longer stays. So if, if a clinician wants to hold a person longer, they can seek what's known as a 5250, and that's a 14-day hold. Ultimately, a person needs a formal hearing to be placed on that 14-day 5250. Serial or stacked holds is uh, two terms that people use to refer to this practice. It's sort of a workaround around that 72-hour window. So instead of seeking that 5250 and securing that court hearing, clinicians are placing people on back-to-back 72-hour holds. And where does a person under a 5150 hold go to get treatment in Imperial County today? There are a few options. So in general, the only facility in Imperial County that should be taking people on 5150 holds is a county-operated outpatient clinic with just seven beds. So that's an inadequate facility to handle you know, what can be as many as a thousand cases of 5150 holds a year. That unit operates typically during regular business hours. It has some restrictive criteria. So if you are a person who may have a violent history or additional medical issues, for example, this already limited clinic, they will not serve you there. And, And that's where the emergency rooms come in. So the county has two hospitals. And what we found is that they act as alternative locations for 5150 holds even though they're not officially designated to accept them. And these hospitals don't have the psychiatric staff to meet people's needs who are there on a 5150. I think there are pretty clear due process concerns with this use of just constantly restarting that 72-hour clock and and somebody never getting a hearing for whether they should be kept uh, in treatment against their will longer term. You spoke with some former and current mental health care workers from Imperial County. What did they have to say about this practice? What happens with serial holds is people are being placed in ill-equipped facilities like that clinic I just mentioned or emergency rooms. They're not getting that formal hearing. You're right. They are, they are not getting the due process that, are in, that they're entitled to. What I hear, however, is behavioral health officials tell me they have this dilemma and, and it exists in Imperial County. So you have that state law and obligation to get people that formal hearing. Um, But you still need to find a person a long-term bet if you feel they need to be held longer. And that does not exist in Imperial County. So anyone who needs to be held longer is sent elsewhere, like San Diego, for example. And what I heard from behavioral health officials, including a former employee in Imperial County, is that there's the challenge of finding that bed in that 72-hour time frame. And then there's a concern that alternatively, if you decide, uh, let's release the person, that they still may be a harm to, they may still have harm to themselves or to others, and that it can result, you know, in death is what these officials tell me. Jennifer, we've talked a lot on this program about Governor Gavin Newsom's care court law, which he signed just two weeks ago. And these new courts are having the power to force people with debilitating psychosis into longer term treatment. Could that law result in authorities using serial 5150s less often? Yeah, I think just like you said, there's been a lot of things kind of potential solutions kind of thrown at our system as we look at the failures and challenges 
of um, treating folks with serious mental illness in California. And Care Court is one of those. And, and I think it really kind of shines a light on all the problems we're seeing within the system, like serial 5150s, for example. The people that we will probably see who um, find themselves in front of Care Court, a 5150 will not be new to them. Uh, this is often the first step, it, the first step in involuntary treatment. It's the first step ultimately to people who may be placed under a conservatorship, which is a possibility if you, you know, do not uh, complete a program or, or flunk, for lack of better word, uh, care court. Um, and so I think it's just a, a really, it highlights just a lot of the problems that the mental health system in California has. Um, and the idea with care court is to try to uh, provide early care, not to get to the point where you might be being placed on back-to-back 5150s or you might be being placed on a conservatorship. And so it, it, time will tell if, that, if that's the case. But the people you'll see in front of care court, a 5150 will not be something they are unaware of, I would bet. State legislators have taken notice of some of the problems with psychiatric holds in California. What legislation is being considered to tackle this? So there are two bills that um, we mentioned in our reporting. Both of them are on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk right now. Both have cleared the state legislator. One seeks to improve overall the data collection for 5150s in California um, with the, the goal of trying to identify disparities to actually get a good idea of what's happening with these short-term holds. There's actually very little data available statewide on a very common piece of our involuntary treatment. Um, Another bill seeks to clarify when this 72-hour window for a 5150, when that actually begins. The counties actually start that clock at different times. Some may start it at the time that you may be picked up by law enforcement, for example, or by the time you, you get into an official designated facility to take these holds. So it really varies across the state. And both of those wait, await uh, Gavin Newsom's signature. Um, the governor has hundreds of bills to consider by the end of the week. Um, so I think we'll know soon if, if uh, they'll become law. I've been speaking with Jennifer Bowman, investigative reporter with iNewsource. And Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. California will not be joining 20 other states in making kindergarten mandatory for students before they enter first grade. Governor Gavin Newsom this week vetoed a bill that would have done just that. He cited the bill's cost, an estimated $268 million annually, which wasn't accounted for in this year's budget. Supporters say mandatory kindergarten would help students from marginalized communities. Here to break the story down is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. And M.G., welcome. Good to be with you, Andrew. Now, I have to say, I was surprised that kindergarten wasn't mandatory already. I thought it was. I went to kindergarten, didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. What happens when a student enters school in first grade, never having been to kindergarten? So let's talk about uh, the first part of your question, which is that most people are surprised that kindergarten is not mandatory. Like most states, California does not mandate kindergarten as it does other grades. California children who are five years old are eligible for kindergarten, but the law does not require them to attend school until they are six, which brings us to the second part of your question. What about those students who enter school in first grade never having been to kindergarten? The truth of the matter is they are at a real disadvantage because they are entering school at a late age, whereas many of their classmates have already had an experience 
of getting into routines, of following a schedule, and so forth. So it is uh, definitely a disadvantage. We visited um, an elementary school uh, this week at High Tech High Mesa Elementary School. It's a charter school, and um, the administrators, the teachers that we talked to there were very supportive of a mandate uh, for children to be in kindergarten, and they're a little bit disappointed that it, that the law did not pass and, in fact, was vetoed. I talked with Monique Knight. She is the director of the school. That's what they call the principal in a charter school. And here's what she had to say. All of what they do is authentic work. Um, their play is authentic. Their talk is authentic. They think about what they've learned at home or in their in their own community settings, and they bring it into the school. So what she's talking about there is really what you asked in the in the question, and that is, you know, these kids are bringing all of that to a classroom setting, and uh, if they miss kindergarten, it's a missed opportunity. How did kindergarten attendance change during the pandemic when schools were mostly closed? Dramatically. Uh, the statistics show that in California, kindergarten enrollment dropped nearly 12% that first year of COVID, which is significant. That's a lot of kids. And so the idea behind this law that was vetoed was uh, to encourage uh, more parents to get their kids into a kindergarten setting to give them the advantage of getting a jumpstart on their education. When he was explaining his veto, Governor Newsom said the state had not budgeted for the added costs of mandating kindergarten attendance, which, again, are estimated at $268 million each year. But he has supported this concept in the past, hasn't he? He has, and it does come down to money. Uh, the budget did not have money allocated for adding up to 20,000 public school students. That would be the added uh, number of kindergartners if this was to be mandated. And so um, he vetoed it because it was not uh, allocated. However, he has supported and did lead the, the support for transitional kindergarten. Transitional kindergarten is the law that passed recently saying that by the year 2025, uh, every four-year-old in the state of California will be eligible and able to attend transitional kindergarten, which is really what it sounds like. It's an opportunity to get the child in a classroom setting to begin to learn those routines and the schedules in preparation for kindergarten, which hopefully they will continue to. What's the likelihood that this idea or concept of mandatory kindergarten comes back in a future legislative session? That is hard to tell. Even if we had a crystal ball and we looked into it, uh, we, we really wouldn't be able to determine that. What we know is that because there was such overwhelming support for this, it likely will come back in the next session in some form, whether it will be mandated kindergarten for all, or maybe another semblance of that is still to be determined. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez, and M.G., thank you. Thank you.
Last week, the city of San Diego apologized for supporting the removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans by rescinding a 1942 resolution that called for the FBI to remove them from the city. Council members say the 80-year-old resolution was racist and hateful. I'm joined by Kay Ochi of the Japanese American Historical Society of San Diego. Kay, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. This resolution came on the heels of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's executive order, which opened the door for this and the forced removal and incarceration of people of Japanese descent. What is your reaction to San Diego's apology? Well, I'm I'm completely thrilled. I'm so pleased with the San Diego City Council uh, for unanimously passing this resolution to rescind. And what initiated the city of San Diego's rescission? It came through a collaboration between the Central Library and the Historical Society. We worked on a really fabulous exhibit that was last fall into this January about Clara Breed. And she was a librarian back before World War II, during and afterwards, and had befriended her students who came into the library. But not just befriended, but she just... Um, help them when they had were forced to leave San Diego with their parents upwards of 2000 Japanese Americans were forced to leave the city. And she was there at the train station to see them off. She gave them small gifts of postcards with postage. She maintained lifelong relationships with these Japanese Americans. And so this exhibit um, led to some research that the librarians did and they uncovered resolution 76068, which had all of that hateful language. And um, they took it upon themselves. I like to think of them as our librarian activists who wrote the resolution to rescind, uh, worked with local people, meaning the Historical Society and the Japanese American Citizens League to get our input and support, of course. And um, that's where it all started. And I'm so grateful. And if you don't mind personal privilege, uh, I want to do a shout out to Steve Roman, Sarah Hendy Jackson, Mark Cherry. Moni Tong and Jennifer Jenkins. These are the five, the team that really spearheaded this effort. And then when presented to the city council, um, Sean Ela Rivera, council president through district nine really led the charge and got all of the council members, you know, to support this resolution to rescind. Hmm. And, And you've been deeply involved in this moment in history. How has your work and background prepared you for this? Oh, thank you. Um, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, sounds like a long time. I joined uh, an organization based primarily in Los Angeles, Nikkei for Civil Rights and Redress. Nikkei is the term for people of Japanese ancestry. We're a grassroots organization and uh, I was a teacher for 30 plus years. We had, you know, housewives and gardeners and truck drivers and all manner of folk from the Japanese American community who Uh, got together to fight, to demand that the government um, apologize and provide, you know, redress and reparations. NCRR uh, was one of, mainly the grassroots organization that involved the people who went through the camps, the people who who really suffered. And as we learned their stories, because as we well know, you know, history really didn't talk about what happened to the Japanese people. They were only that they were removed. Um, The more we learned, it just not only angered us, it filled us with sadness about the stories that we had never learned and heard because our parents didn't speak about it. Um, you know, they were too busy trying to, 
recover after the three-year imprisonment, my mom and dad with the San Diego Japanese were sent to post in Arizona. And, you know, having come to San Diego, this beautiful, you know, oasis, a beautiful resort town, to go to the, you know, horrible desert for three years, um, not only was it a physical shock, but mostly it was an emotional shock for the losses that they suffered. And I do have to say the main one, besides the obvious property losses, was um, their dignity and their, you know, they, they had a sense of shame of being targeted as being the enemy uh, because of the actions of Imperial Japan. And so even 40 years later, when I joined NCRR, you know, we learned about uh, all that happened to them, the real story, the real history. And it just fired us up. And I believe that those testimonies, which happened through a federal commission, and this is important, um, Jimmy Carter did us the huge favor of passing this um, federal commission to study what happened to Japanese Americans. And this happened in 1981. The federal commission came to Los Angeles and we heard over 150 testimonies of primarily Japanese Americans about what really happened to their families. But this uh, occurred, the commission went all over the United States to nine different major cities with Japanese Americans. They collected over almost 800 testimonies. But the bottom line is the report that they were required to present. They concluded that our incarceration was based on race prejudice. They added wartime hysteria and the failure of leadership. And so that really propelled us further to fight for redress and reparations. And um, I just wanna say that I feel so lucky. I was born after the war. I didn't have to suffer through it as my parents, my older sister, the community and upwards of you know, more than 120,000 people. You know, I mean, you say when people hear about the forced removal of Japanese Americans, they don't really understand the depth of trauma and pain that was and still is experienced. And, you know, I know that this issue is very personal for you, and you often talk about your parents. How were they impacted by this? Yes, the harms. Um, Yeah, I will address the fact that my parents were one of the fortunate ones. They were 20 and 21 years old when they were forcibly removed. And um, they did not, they were very um, not wealthy people. They had no property by that time. So they did not have that loss. And because they had been raised in Japan, they were less aware perhaps of the, of the constitutional rights to which they should have been afforded. They made the best of it. And that would be the theme of our community. Um, two things, actually. They were proud Americans so proud to be Americans that there was a sector who felt that the best thing to do to show our, our pride and our loyalty to this country is not to make a fuss. But after the war, they were able to return to Barrio Logan, Logan Heights. And one particular family, um, Japanese American family had a home and another had a small market right on Logan Heights. And through the kindness of neighbors, the Nava family, that home and business was protected. So the Hayashis actually were able to return to Barrio Logan and my mom and dad um, were able to move into their home. And that's how Japanese Americans had no place to go. Everything had been taken from us except for those places that were protected by good people. And so uh, we lived there first, Barrio Logan. And uh, as like many Japanese Americans, you know, as I said, my dad was involved with the fishing industry and my mom worked in the tuna canneries. But then 
with hard work, about 10 years later, they were able to uh, cobble together enough money for a down payment. And now uh, they were able to purchase a home in Chula Vista. And actually today, uh, in my retirement from teaching, I have returned home nationally. I'm sitting here in our, my parents' house, which is my, you know, my house in Chula Vista, and um, becoming more involved with the San Diego community again. And your parents, they, they did accept reparations from the U.S. government. Not everyone did. Why did they make the decision to accept them? Yes, absolutely. I think um, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, that was the uh, legislation that we had fought for. And what it did, it was apologize. And that was huge. The apology was even more important to our community for the majority than the token reparations. And um, my mom and dad, they accepted the reparations gladly. The amount was $20,000. And some people, I don't know how you react to that amount, but it was nothing. It was so token compared to the three years of lost lives, businesses, opportunities, you know, hopes and dreams. And most importantly, their freedom was taken from them for those years. So $20,000 was really nothing. Um, But for them, you know, low economic um, people, they were very grateful. And I don't mind sharing that they were able to put a new roof on their house at that point, you know, and do things that uh, people uh, have to do. And for which, you know, they were really, really um, didn't have a lot of extra money. They, as a good person, good parents would, they gave their children, you know, a small amount of that money. I want to play a clip from City Council President Monica Montgomery Stepp from the meeting on Tuesday. Yes. I do think that it is our duty to use our platforms to speak out against hate in any form. Um, And I also just want to briefly shout out my uh, Reparations Task Force uh, fellow member, Don Tamaki, who is an attorney in the Bay Area who's really helping us. Do You know him. (laughs) He's helping us to really wade through what reparations looks like um, based on his experience and being a true ally in that fight. And, and you are involved with the State Reparations Task Force, and I wonder if you can talk about why it's important for you to be an ally for Black Americans in this effort. Absolutely, um, yes. With N- NTRR once again, um, we realized early on, this is back in the 80s, that it was our fight, but we had the privilege of having gone through the civil rights movement and learning the lessons of all those leaders and, you know, working with um, people of color, uh, students, you know, when they were starting ethnic studies programs on different college campuses. And those lessons were well-learned. And so with NTRR, our principles of, of unity, of organizing, were number one, direct monetary reparations for the Japanese American uh, people who were you know, who suffered at the hands of the government. That was number one. But two was education, education about what happened. And uh, because, you know, it was not written about, the truth was not told there. And third, that we would support other communities in their fight for justice when especially targeted by the government. We feel that these are not isolated events. It's the harms are really based on a, a very, very damaged system in this country of white supremacy. And, um, you know, we really look to the Constitution and, and their promises of, you know, justice for all. And I think that 
is really, really um, one of our main points. And certainly uh, AB 3121, um, I think the time is right. I think now is a time that we, we really work hard for some repair uh, to our Black communities. I've been speaking with Kay Ochi of the Japanese American Historical Society of San Diego. Kay, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you very much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. The Little Book of Joy is a new children's book by two of the most significant spiritual leaders of the last century, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who died in 2021. The book also features illustrations by San Diego artist and muralist Rafael Lopez, illustrator of 15 other children's books, including the bestseller The Day You Begin. Lopez joined KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon Evans. Here's their conversation. So The Little Book of Joy began as a book for adults published in 2016, and it was based on a visit between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Can you tell us what happened in that visit? Yes, I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the co-writers of the, the new book, uh, Douglas Abrams, is, is very close to uh, uh, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And Rachel Newman is very close to uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So at one point, I think uh, uh, Douglas Abrams traveled to South Africa and um, met with uh, the Archbishop. And he said, have you ever considered getting together with the Dalai Lama and have a sit-down conversation because you two have so much in common. And uh, he jumped at the uh, opportunity. He said, of course, you know, <laughs> I am there. So eventually they worked all the logistics out and they, they got together and it was pure magic. I was privy to some of the earlier uh, uh, takes of the video because they sent it to me to get a little bit of a feeling of their relationship. And the bantering between the two of them, the sense of humor that they both have, and the conversation, it was just so refreshing to see these two people that are so human, and we perceive them as these amazing figures, champions of humanity, but they're sitting down and they sound like the, the person that you want to be really close friends with. So it was, it was magic in the making. And the question at the heart of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu's conversations was, how do we find joy in the face of life's inevitable suffering? So how do children experience or internalize this? Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, if you just open <laughs> your your phone or you read the news, uh, we, we realize that we are surrounded with so many amazing, incredible and difficult challenges from, from war-torn regions to refugees crisis, to famine, to climate change, it could become pretty overwhelming. And if, even in today's, on everyday's life, with people that are not facing those horrible challenges, we do find things like a uh, lack of understanding, solitude. Uh, uh, you know, the, all of us have faced that. And I believe that the message of uh, Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama is that 
regardless of what you face, because let's think about it. I mean, these two uh, uh, people have faced incredible challenges in their own life, more than you and I could ever face, I think, you know. So the fact that they were able to find joy by looking very hard and looking around and seeing joy in the most in the more insignificant things that surround us, you can find tolerance, you can find forgiveness, you can find reconciliation, like in the case of South Africa. And if they could, if they could do it, why not send that same message to kids that face maybe a different level of challenges in their life and remind them that, that the human character is very resilient and that we can find joy even at the darkest of time and, and, and joy has the power to, to bring light into the darkest of times. Can you tell me about some of the symbols that you used in, in the art to represent joy? Originally, the idea was to uh, portray happiness as rainbows, which I get it. And I think, yes, you know, rainbows is especially the, the, the beautiful diversity or, and the diverse colors that we see after the storm, after you know, everything is over and then the sun comes out and we see the rainbow. But I wanted, and we all agree too, that we needed to actually not find it so easy because joy sometimes is not easy to find. So we conceptualized the idea that rather than having from the very beginning this rainbow, which, by the way, if you look at the book, once you see the book, it's not going to look like a rainbow. It's more like ribbons of color, which uh, I was inspired by the, those, the beautiful ribbons and, and flags that you see in Tibet. But if you start the book in the beginning, you can't see the joy. You can't see the color. You need to find that it's there, but it's very hidden. It's whether it's either the color of this chimney here or it's a little bug over there with a little football made out of like rags of color, but it's very far away. And I wanted to create uh, teachable opportunities for teachers to, uh, of, of teachable moments where they can actually open the page and, and tell the kids, where, you, where is the joy? Can you find the joy here? I mean, and you know, the, my characters look sad and lonely, but there's joy out there. So we thought it was an incredible opportunity to do that metaphorically. Joy could be hidden and slowly it starts to evolve as a rainbow of colors until it's be it becomes very, very uh, evident and it's, it's right there in your face. So you have illustrated a lot of children's books, and so many of your books center on encouraging and inspiring young change makers. What was it like starting with material from such highly esteemed leaders and change makers themselves? Well, first of all, uh, it's pretty surreal, right? When you get the call and they said, uh, you know, they want you to be the illustrator for these two champions of uh, peace, the world peace and, and world understanding. So uh I was I was pretty floored. <laughs> it took me a couple of days to realize uh, the significance of doing this, and incredibly honored. I, I I thought that I needed to do my best work to really represent their message as best as I could. And uh, I've always been attracted to stories of um, underdogs. I mean, being a uh, an immigrant myself, uh, my mother was uh, wanted to become an architect when she was in in, in the 1950s in Mexico, where no one. No woman would ever dare to become an architect at the time. You know, they were all men. And, uh, uh, you know, having a, 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 a kid with special needs as well. I, I like stories of people that can survive and, and become stronger and overcome so many challenges. So those are the stories that I'm attracted to when I illustrate books. And this is definitely on the very top. I mean, because if you are aware and familiar with their stories of both both of their journeys uh, since childhood is just amazing what they have been able to accomplish, not just for them, but for the rest of us in, in, a, in a very moral way too. You know, they're incredible messages about this 
hopeful message of peace, tolerance, reconciliation, compassion, and kindness. So yeah, everything just fell into the right place. Uh, and and the, the challenge was a little scary, but uh, I thought I could do it with a little bit of time and lots of uh, meditation and relaxation. Though. Raphael, thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. It was a pleasure talking to you. That was KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans speaking with Rafael Lopez, the San Diego-based illustrator of a new children's book, The Little Book of Joy. It comes out today. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.